Hello, my name is Jeremiah Johnson, and I would like to welcome you to the second episode of Leaving the Shire, where we seek to leave our comfortable hobbit holes and go on an adventure to face uncomfortable situations, challenges to our beliefs, and come back a changed person. I hope, I hope you've had a great couple weeks. Uh, we've been dealing with colds and stuff, and it's one of the reasons I hadn't got another episode up. The other reason is, I know I mentioned last time we'd be diving into Ecclesiastes today, and as I started studying it, it was a little deeper than I expected. I mean, I knew it would require a lot of study, but it, it definitely it definitely has been a, a lot more, and I began to wonder for a minute if I bit off more than I could chew. Um, some of my perspective on the book has already changed a little bit, which uh, I'll explain here in a minute. But I'm still very excited to do this episode, very excited to study this book. Um, and I believe it'll go a long way in, in laying the foundation for the podcast and our what our goals and what we desire to do. And so one thing I did want to note before I get two things, actually, I did want to note before we get too much into the episode. One is sometimes I'll be reading quotations from different commentators and if the verse doesn't sound exactly like when I read the verse, I did want to note that most of my reading will come from the New English translation, the Net Bible. Um, and different trans, different commentators use various translations. Uh, I also am very familiar with the King James, so sometimes the reading throws me off a little bit. Um, so just I wanted to clarify that at the beginning. And in addition to that, with the commentators, um, I'll try to, as I quote them, to give credit where credit is due, but I also plan in the notes to provide a list of the different commentators and resources that I used, so that way if something catches your ear, and maybe you can uh, use those resources as a starting point for your own study into this book. And with that, we'll get started with Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 1, the Bible says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. As we look at this verse, I would like for you to notice the, the first part here where it says, The words of the teacher. The Hebrew word here for teacher, let's see if I can pronounce this right, is Koheleth. I'll, and I'll try to use that term from here on out when referencing the writer of the book. This word references both the writer and the name of the book. Uh, in the, with the name of the book, the the term Koheleth, co, wow, I'm struggling. Koheleth, it simply means in the Hebrew, it has to deal with to assemble. Um, it goes with different Hebrew verbs that you know deal with the Hebrew word kahal, contracting, compacting, Hebrew nouns. Uh, Kahila and Kahal, assembling group, company, congregation. There's different Hebrew words that relate to that, which just has the idea of to assemble, to group up. Um, there's a verb that's, that's related to it, has to do with addressing and assembly. And so you get the basic idea there that the whole Point with using that term is as someone addressing an assembly and the reason some translations like the King James and I believe the NASB will use the term preacher is because they take it with a religious underpinning it's it's not right or wrong from, from my understanding of the study but 
it's it's not necessarily what the word is is really pushing i guess you could say the whole the idea with the teacher is is referenced in the new english translation here and some others is more so one who addresses an assembly but not necessarily a religious assembly um, and so with that idea when the jewish people translated the old testament into the greek and i believe it was the one or two hundreds bc in the, in the book called the septuagint which is literally just the 70 dealing with how many translators were used in egypt to translate the old testament into greek the word koheleth became excuse me it was translated ecclesiastes and hence the name of the book ecclesiastes and, and as you go on down through history in our day ecclesiastical has to do with the idea of the church um, or assembly and so that's where the name of the book came from the name of the book literally comes from the writer of the book just like you know like isaiah does or jeremiah and some of the other prophets you know we get we get the name of the book from the writer of the book now here comes the question though who was koheleth well that's a a lot more of a debate than I realized when I when I first started. Tradition accepts that it was Solomon, and there is good reason to accept this. Um, just briefly, as I mentioned, the the word kahal, which is, is similar to the word kahalik, a lot of commentators believe that is a link back to First Kings eight. Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he'll use repeatedly the verb. Hebrew verb kahal is used there in reference to Solomon gathering the people. And so they'll try to bring that link there. So, I mean, that, that's a good start. But also, if you look at verse 1, where we were at, it says that the teacher is the son of David. Solomon was definitely son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this is important because after Solomon, his son Rehoboam may have reigned in Jerusalem for for his reign but it wasn't over all of israel saul david and solomon were the only kings that their reigns over all of israel from jerusalem and solomon then is the only one who is the son of david um, and there's also the reason I, I forgot to mention but in verse 12 says i the teacher have been king over israel in jerusalem uh, so that's where i when i mentioned over israel that had to be over all israel because that's what it says in verse 12 but on top of that in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1 it says i thought to myself i have become much wiser than any of my predecessors who have ruled over jerusalem i have acquired much wisdom and knowledge if you if you look at first kings chapter let's see i believe it's first kings chapter 3 you'll find the account of solomon and he's before the Lord. He's just gotten married and he went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices in verse 4 of First Kings chapter 3. And it says in verse 5, One night in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. God said, Tell me what I should give you. Solomon replied, You demonstrated great loyalty to your servant, my father David, as he served you faithfully, properly, and sincerely. You have maintained this great loyalty to this day by allowing his son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord my God, 
though I am only you have made your servant king in my father David's place, even though I am only a young man and inexperienced. Your servant stands among your chosen people. They are a great nation that is too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning mind so that he can make judicial decisions for your people and distinguish right from wrong. Otherwise, no one is able to make judicial decisions for this great nation of yours. The Lord was pleased. Solomon made this request. And God said to him, because you have asked for the ability to make wise judicial decisions and not for long life or riches or vengeance on your enemies, I grant your request and give you a wise discerning mind superior to that of anyone who has preceded you or will succeed you. Furthermore, I am giving you what you did not request, riches and honor, so that you will be the greatest king of your generation. If you follow my instructions by obeying my rules and regulations, just as your father David did, then I will grant you long life. So even here it references that God promises Solomon that he would be the wisest of any that came before him or after him. And so that, that ties in very well with verse 16 there of chapter 1. And even Jesus said that Solomon was the wisest to have lived in, in the Gospels. But not only does the reference to wisdom tie in here, but also that of great wealth. We find that God promised him great wealth in that passage. And that's also mentioned there. And in, in later on, it talks about in verse chapter 2, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes, I have increased my possessions. I built houses for myself, plenty of years. It goes on and describes his great riches. So we find that tied in. And then chapter 2, verse 8, he goes on to say, I also amassed silver and gold for myself, as well as valuable treasures taken from kingdoms and provinces. I acquired male singers and female singers for myself. And what gives a man sensual delight? A harem of beautiful concubines. So I was far wealthier than all my predecessors in Jerusalem, yet I maintained my objectivity. So wealth and women is something else that would link with Solomon because... Not only was he a man of great wisdom and a man of great wealth, as we've already discussed, but if you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, it mentions that he had a lot of wives. King he says in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verse 1, King Solomon fell in love with many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They came from nations about which the Lord had warned the Israelites. You must not establish friendly relations with them. And, and go on, it goes on from there. Um, but so those things kind of tie in to the concept of Solomon being the writer just from a, a biblical perspective. There are a couple Hebrew texts that would reference Solomon as the writer of Ecclesiastes related to the Mishnah, the Targum, and uh, other things i won't get into that because my knowledge of hebrew is very limited so we'll we'll try to be careful with that but also some people would look at how he says he mentions his predecessors in a couple passages there that we've already read about his wisdom and his riches and some people are like well if it's solomon then how can you just mention his predecessors in jerusalem if it's you know his only predecessors of the king over israel is saul and david but notice that although it says his predecessors who have ruled over Jerusalem, it does not say who ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. 
So he, when he's thinking about his, his riches and his wisdom, he isn't limited to just Saul and David. He could also be referencing the long history of Jerusalem because if I remember correctly, wasn't Melchizedek king over Jerusalem, king of Salem, which would be the same as Jerusalem. And so really Solomon saying, I'm richer than anybody who's been here, period, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Canaanite, etc., etc. But what I found interesting is there's a pretty strong case against Solom Solomonic authorship, which I, I didn't realize. But, you know, there's things, again, my understanding of this, I've done study, but I've done enough to understand it, but sometimes conveying is real well. So I won't go too deep into this whole concept of you know, the, the loan words. Some people will use the argument that the loan words in Ecclesiastes, there are some that would negate Solomonic authorship because it places the book in a later period. Uh, they would say that, you know, coming from Persian and Aramaic words, Arama, excuse me, Aramaic words, they said these words wouldn't have been known till later. The grammatical use of certain terms wouldn't have been known till later. So they would say it was either exilic or post-exilic date. So a late date of the book of Ecclesiastes. But the thing is, is uh, there's, a, there's a commentary that I'll reference a lot tonight that I've been using to study. Um, is the new, inter I believe it's the new international commentary. Forgive me for not knowing that off the top of my head. New International Commentary of the Old Testament. And the author about of that particular book of Ecclesiastes is Tremper Longman. And he states that so little is known about the early transmission of the biblical text that linguistic updating cannot be ruled out. So what is he saying? Yes, those words are there. But that does not mean that it has to come from a later date. Solomon or another early writer could have, and I'll get more into that in a second, or another writer could have written it down originally in the original Hebrew, and then there would be a later editor who's translating it or updating it for his audience, updating the language of the book in such a way to convey the same meaning, but with using more modern words and think of the same concept of you know whether it was the king james translators in 1611 updating some language or you know more modern translations updating the language shakespeare we don't read it exactly the way shakespeare wrote it i'm pretty sure uh, we would have updated the language a little bit there so you get the idea that just because there are certain words that can be tied to other nations that may have been more dominant later on that doesn't mean it has to be a later date but also another thing that he points out is that just because it came from persia those words did it's clear of that that doesn't mean it has to come from the time frame when persia was dominant persia and israel had relations for a while and solomon if you even read the bible it talks about solomon had a lot of international diplomacy going on so the fact that he would use words from other nations wouldn't be that out of hand and that the people in Israel would have knowledge of those words also wouldn't be uncommon uh, but what is also interesting when you consider 
the um, excuse me the the authorship of this book if it was Solomon or not is the perspective let me read uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 real quick Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1 says so I again considered all the oppression that continually occurs on earth this is what I saw the oppressed were in tears but no one was comforted in them verse chapter 5 verse 8 if you see the extortion of the poor, the perversion of justice, and fairness in the government, do not be astonished by the matter. For the high official is watching, is watched by a higher official, and there are higher ones over them. The produce of the land is seized by all of them. Even the king is served by the fields. That's an interesting perspective if it's Solomon writing it. Because Solomon was king, and we don't find in scripture that he abdicated his throne. The Targum, I believe, does present a legend of him abdicating his throne at the end of his reign and, and living for a short time, not as king, just to, it's really just to preserve the tradition of his authorship of this book. But we find no other evidence of that. And so when you read those passages, it'd really be interesting that King would lament injustice, that he would lament corruption in government, but not use his power to do anything about it. So that's a that's a very interesting concept. But then probably the most um, most interesting thing that I find that kind of uh, goes against the concept of Solomon being the author of the book entirely is really just the layout of the book. And that if you read, we'll read. Um, We'll read verses one through eleven of chapter one, and then we'll we'll go to chapter twelve, so I can so I can show you what I'm saying. And I may not read the entire thing because we are going to get into it here in a minute. But it, as we already read, it says the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, feudal, feudal, laments the teacher, absolutely, absolutely feudal. So this seems to come from a second or third person perspective. But you go to verse twelve. It says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I decided to carefully and thoroughly examine all that has been accomplished on the earth. I concluded in verse 13. I reflected in verse 14. So it goes to a first-person thing from second and third-person view earlier in the chapter. And then chapter 12, verse 8 says, Absolutely futile when it's the teacher. All these things are futile. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught knowledge to the people. He carefully evaluated and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful words and to write accurate, truthful sayings. The words of the sages are like prods, and the collected sayings are like firmly fixed nails. They are given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. There is no end to making of many books, and having much study is exhausting to the body. Having heard everything, I have reached this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will evaluate every deed, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So especially when you get to the end of the book, it really portrays that somebody had taken the, the musings, the frustrations, the inner struggle of Kohelet, the teacher, and had put them down as an instruction to his son. And so that's why many, many scholars would now say that Solomon wasn't necessarily the writer 
But what is clear from, from my personal study and, and really generally accepted is even if Solomon did not write the book, it is clear that the writer wants us to take from a from the perspective of Solomon. And if you know anything about the life of Solomon, you know that while early in his life, he got wisdom from God. He lived in such a way that pleased God. He built the temple. But then he went astray. He started having association with nations that God said not to have association with. He married women from those nations. And his heart was turned to other gods. And we do not find that Solomon ever repented. Could he? Yes. I mean, the tradition of Solomon being the author would argue that. But either way, when we consider the perspective of this book, whether Solomon wrote it or not, we must keep the life of Solomon in mind because that is a man who had every opportunity in his day to examine the wealth of this world, the pleasures of this world, the riches and the just all the joys that life could bring. And yet the author of this book tries to show he comes up empty. And that is very important to our understanding of this book because there's there's so much you can talk about, but really you've got to keep that in mind as we think about this book. There is another important thing to remember when we, as we start the study of this book is that although Ecclesiastes is the inspired word of God and recorded in the canon of Scripture, we cannot take every single verse as truth to be lived, truth to be understood by itself. What do I mean by that? Well, think of the book of Job. Do you take every word spoken by Job or by his friends as something to be lived by, as something that the Holy Spirit just wants you to take and to just envelop into yourself? No. There are things that Job and his friends say that just, while understandable and sometimes even correct, they are not always proper, biblical, and orthodox. Uh, Trimper Longman, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, says this, An analogy with the book of Job further clarifies this situation. The two books are similar in structure and also evoke a similar reading strategy. The body of both books contain dubious teaching when judged in the light of the rest of the canon. For instance, the arguments of the three Furians, Elihu and even Job, concerning the reason for Job's suffering are too narrow in their understanding. And therefore, all of them misunderstand God's relationship to Job's situation. Not that everything they say is wrong, but much of it is out of keeping with the divine perspective revealed in the Yahweh's speeches at the end of the book. So that's that's exactly what I'm saying. As we, as we go through the study of Ecclesiastes, I'll try to be careful of that, to not just try to make application of every verse. And I hope that you will keep that in mind as well, that if I read something, and we're going to read some hard stuff in part of the parts of this book, that doesn't always make it true. Some of that is just coming from Kohelet's perspective, his inner musings, his inner struggles. There's things he says that contradicts Scripture, that contradicts what he says in other places in the book. 
So just keep that in mind as we go through. If I read something and you scratch your head, just you know, just 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 keep that in mind, and uh, that'll help us both out. Hopefully, I'll I'll be able to keep that in mind as well. But let's go ahead and we'll go ahead and dive into the first eleven verses of the book real quick. And this is where, from my perspective, and uh, from certain scholars' perspective, the the framer, we'll call it the second author of the book of Ecclesiastes, sets the stage for Kahala's teaching. And I apologize for my struggle with the Hebrew pronunciation. Hopefully that'll get better as we go along. But he's setting the stage for that. And so what does he say? Introducing really the whole fundamental understanding of Kahala's frustration. Verse 2. Futile, futile, laments the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. What's the King James rendering of that? Vanity of vanity, saith the teacher. All is vanity. Wow. <laughs> Good morning, sunshine, right? Uh, that's such a positive, positive outlook of life. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here. But, you know, in a way, I get that. Um, that, that struggle he's going through. And he just finds everything just empty. That the Hebrew word there is is hevel, and it has the idea of worthless or useless, uh, which is used if you you're curious. That Hebrew word is also used in reference to the uselessness of idols in Jeremiah sixteen nineteen and Zechariah ten two, and it also has the idea of a vapor, temporary fleeting, in Psalm thirty nine. Verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. Let's see if I can find that real quick here. It says, uh, verse 5 says, Look, you made my day short now, and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, are nothing but what? Vapor. That's the same Hebrew word. Vanity of vanities. Futile, futile. It means the same thing. Life is empty. Life is meaningless. There is a void there that I cannot fill. And this book will go through and Kahalath will seek meaning. He'll seek purpose. He'll seek fulfillment in so many things. And not find it. He'll look under the sun all over this world and not find meaning, purpose. And the one thing that's interesting, I found interesting when, uh, like I said, the King James translates this vanity of vanities, uh, or another translation does meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Life, you know, and they talk about life being meaningless. Is that superlative? It's the same idea as calling God King of Kings. That means it's the supreme concept of meaninglessness. Like, like that's it. There's nothing, no, like it's, I can't find it. I've looked, I've struggled. And so it goes on to say, um, excuse me, sorry, I want to, before I go that next verse, I wanted to read again something long that says he's, he's paraphrasing him. Uh, to paraphrase, I mean, and, uh, paraphrasing Longman, he says, as we read his reflections, we are struck by two inescapable facts of human existence. That are the sources of his anguish, death, and the inability to control 
and know the appropriate time to do anything. And he goes on to talk about that through the book, where Proverbs gives truths to be a, to be applied. It doesn't always tell you where to apply them. And is Kohala's trying to figure all of that out, he gets frustrated because he can't. And death looms over him in such a way that he cannot escape. And so even though we don't know exactly when to do everything. I mean, if you think about it, like, you're trying to make a big decision. Is it the right decision? Is it not? Also, you just, sometimes you just pray, hope this is the right time. I hope this is the right decision, because honestly, you just don't know. But Longman goes on to say, yeah, humans do know one thing for certain. They know that they will die. And this knowledge frustrated Kohala so much that he reflected on it at great length. He concluded that death rendered every human achievement and status useless. After all, they will pass away and will not be remembered. Yeah. Harsh, right? Kahala's struggling. He's frustrated. He just... He doesn't go, know where to go. He goes on to say, What benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? That word benefit there can also be translated profit, and it simply means what is left over. Over. So, you know, if you're running a business, it's the same idea. You know, you may get enough to make ends meet to cover your expenses, but profit is when you have something to take home after that. And so from Kahala's perspective, all the effort, all the labor which man puts out, What's it for? What do we have at the end of the day? We've survived. We've paid it. But what do we have? Uh, I mean, can you sense his skepticism already? He doesn't see any profit in living. And he even uses that word labor. The word that he uses for that. It just has the idea of toil, which would convey the concept of misery in your work. So he's like, he doesn't find enjoyment in his work. He just sees it as worthless, as useless, as a struggle. And I get this. Um, as I mentioned in the, the last episode, uh, right around Thanksgiving, uh, my own mortality, I began to, to deal with that. And I guess that's why this book drew me in so much. I started wondering what, what was worth it. And, you know, I would be distracted during the day because I love listening to podcasts and... So I constantly had something going on right here, but when I come home, I'd be like, why am I doing this? What's my purpose? Is there a point? And it was almost crippling in light of in light of my own mortality. It's like, why? Why enjoy life? Why? And for those who know me, you know I love my girls. But I was even struggling with with, with just enjoying them because that was constantly on my mind. And so I get, I don't know that I'm adequately able to to relate that to you, but I get his frustration here. I get his inner turmoil. As he's facing his own mortality, he's like, if we're all going to die, then what's the point of all this work that we do? And he goes on to say, a generation comes and a generation goes. But the earth remains the same 
through the ages. Quoting Black Elk here, Warren Wiersbe knows a quote by Black Elk, who is a Sioux religious leader. Everything an Indian does is a circle, is in a circle. Even the seasons form a great circle and they're changing, and always come back again to where they were. The life of man is a circle from childhood to childhood. It's a constant cycle that we go through. We're born, we live, we die. We're born, we live, we die. We all experience that once, but humanity just goes through that cycle over and over. Jerome says this regarding this verse. What is more vain than this vanity, that the earth which was made for humans stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. And it's notable that very early, Kohala introduced the concept familiar to Ecclesiastes, the brevity of life and the certainty of death. And so again, since it's frustration, why are we working? Why are we laboring? If the very ground that we're working, the very caves that we're mining, will outlive us, they'll outlast us, and we just go back to the dust. He's looking for meaning. He's looking for fulfillment, and he's not finding it. And all he sees is the futility of our labor and the futility of our life. And yet, here's earth. It's still going through it. And that's how he leads into into verse 5. talks about the sun rises and sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The, The wind goes to the south and circles around to the north. Round and round, the wind goes on its rounds, its returns. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, they there they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome, and no one can bear to describe it. So not only does man just live, work, and die, and his earth continues, but earth doesn't even change, right? If you look at all the change of the earth, it's in cycles. And Something I would like to point out is when you think about Scripture, you've got to be careful as you understand it to ask this question. Does the Bible have to be scientifically accurate to make its point? I would argue that here, no. It talks about the sun rising and setting and hurries away to a place from which it rises again. Well, we know that technically the earth revolves around the sun, but that doesn't negate the scriptural truth here. For, for It's important to realize that this is observationally true and it's being used to teach a lesson. So again, thinking about scripture, we can't get caught up in every scientific fact, especially in passages like this, when it's, what's our observation? What was their observation? Sun rising, the sun setting. And he's using that to convey the point. What's the point? It's just a cycle. Yes, there's a change. The sun's in the east in the morning and the west is it in the evening. But guess what? Even though there's a change, guess what? The same thing will happen tomorrow. And if you say, well, it's in different positions because of the seasons, it'll it'll move a little bit. But yeah, but guess what? In the spring, it's still going to be in similar positions. In the fall, similar positions. So even that change is still in a cycle. That then he talks about the cycles of the wind and the monotony there, and the water just continually cycling. I believe I read a statistic: ninety-seven percent of the Earth's water is in the ocean. 
and only enough, I forget the percentage, but only enough for 10 days of rain is ever available in the sky. And yet what's interesting is the sea is never full. It still maintains its level. And so he just, he finds that so frustration, so frustrating that nature is so redundant that it, the monotony of it, there's no change, there's no fulfillment. There never comes a point when nature is fulfilled and it just completely changes or it ceases to be. It's just the same over and over and over. Here comes spring. Ugh, here comes summer. It's so hard. He's just got such a negative perspective. And as we'll come to understand that as we go through the book, that it's because of his view of without a personal God. But it goes on to say, verse 8, it says, All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. What's he saying here? Not only is nature redundant, always the same, our senses are never satisfied. Life is dull. Think about it. There's always more to hear and see. Nothing leads to complete satisfaction or closure. As I mentioned last time, I love the Hobbit movies. Seeing the Hobbit movies, did that just satisfy my desire to see and I never want to see again? No, there's always another movie. There's always another book. There's always another adventure to see. Think about music. I love music, particularly right now. I really love Toby Mac and Casting Crowns. I like me some Celtic music, too. You know what? I've not heard a song that made me say, oh, I, I've heard that. My hearing is fulfilled. I never want to hear anything else. And that's what he's pointing out. He's frustrated. With not only am I going to die, not only is nature redundant, but my senses will never find fulfillment there. He's tying that back into that idea of profit. Still feel empty. And I really believe verses 9 through 11 demonstrate his cynicism really well. He says, what exists now is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing truly new on earth. Is there anything about which someone can say, look at this, it is new. It was already done long ago before our time. No one remembers the former events, nor, nor will anyone remember the events that are yet to happen. They will not be remembered by the future generations. Whew. Very cynical. Um, I guess you could say there are two views to these verses. One is there's some people would say, well, this, this is biblical truth. And so they would say history is a cycle. What is new is really just stuff that's been forgotten and we've rediscovered it. And then the, the truly new things are still just pushed, you know, think of space travel, we're still just pushed by the same fallen humanity. Um, Ernest Hengstenberg says this, many an undertaking gives promise at its commencement of passing beyond limits fixed by the old cursed laden world. The world exultantly shouts their welcome, but very soon it is evident that in them also a worm is concealed, and they sink down to a level with that which our poor earth has produced in the former age. 
And then Edison would also have a similar view because he said his inventions were only bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them for the happiness of mankind. And, you know, that, that's one perspective. But you also got to remember that, that the Bible talks about God doing a new thing. In Numbers 16.30, talks about God doing a new thing. And let's see if I can find that verse here real quick. And so when you, this is another thing that you, demonstrates that Cahalas' perspective isn't necessarily orthodox truth, but it's, it's his frustration, his inner struggle coming out. It says, but if the Lord does something entirely new, and the earth opens his mouth and swallows them up, along with all that they have, and they go down to the grave, then you will know that these men have despised the Lord. Yes, I know this is a reference to judgment, but it's something new. God opened the earth and swallowed up Dathan and Abiram and their families in judgment for what they had done in rebelling against Moses. But when you take that in mind, that you know there's also the new covenant and different things that, that God does say he does new, you start thinking about Kahalat's perspective and his frustration and his struggle is you is he lets this start to control him start thinking of second peter chapter three verses three through five and it puts Gehulleth in more alignment with the scoffers for it says above all understand this in the last days blatant scoffers will come being propelled by their own evil urges and saying where is his promise return Here's the key. Wherever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the, from the beginning of creation. So Kohelet's saying, there's nothing new. Nothing's changed. That sounds a lot like a scoffer. And he goes on to talk about no one being remembered. And you know, obviously there's there's people that are remembered. We have recording of him in scripture. We have recording of David. We have recording of, of people in history. I do think there is an important truth here to, to consider. And that is no matter what we do, there's only so much of our lives that will be remembered. And for most most of us, it's only going to be maybe to our great-grandkids. I mean, I think about my, my aunts. They'll talk about their, their grandmother. And I never knew her. I have no memory of her. And and when they pass away, I won't really know much to pass on to my children. So there may be a little bit there, but but you, you get what he's saying. He's like, what purpose is this life? I'm not even going to be remembered more than a couple generations. What's the purpose? If I'm just going to die and this earth, which I have labored on for so long, is just going to continue in a cycle. What's the purpose? If I, if my even my senses can never be satisfied, if I can never find something that just fulfills me to the greatest, what's the purpose? Vanity of vanities, saith the teacher. All is vanity. I, I feel like that that presentation of those first few verses is a little rough, um, but hopefully I've conveyed the point. And I was debating in my mind whether to just let the frustration of Solomon or Kahalath, I should say, uh, 
just linger in our minds and our hearts just to get the gravity of the situation he's dealing with and a lot of death and a lot of the brevity of life and a lot of not having control. Um, but as I was studying, and I know I've, I've read a, a lot of scripture tonight, but as I was studying, I just couldn't quite, it won't quite leave it there. Um, I really hope that you will contemplate, because uh, I believe this lays an important foundation for the book. Contemplate the reason for his frustration as he's searching for meaning. He's looking, and we'll find that the book he looks for different things. Start talking about a little bit of wisdom, looking for meaning. And you have to even ask the question what is meaning? What is makes per- life have purpose? Um, but I didn't want to just like just completely leave us on that note but I mentioned a little while ago Psalm 39 and I thought about reading the whole chapter or the whole psalm but I would just like to pick up in verse 4 it says oh Lord help me understand my mortality and the brevity of my life let me realize how quickly my life will pass look you make my day short-lived and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, are nothing but vapor. Surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it away. Oops, sounds like the Ecclesiastes right there. What's the point of life? It goes so fast. What's the point? Verse 7. But now, O oh Lord, Upon what am I relying? You are my only hope. Deliver me from all my sins of rebellion. Do not make me the object of fools' insults. Verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not ignore my sobbing. For I am a resident foreigner with you, a temporary settler just as my ancestors were. Turn your angry gaze away from me so I can be happy before I pass away. Different perspective there. Heart of repentance for his skepticism. The psalmist has. Recognizes his mortality didn't drive that psalmist to skepticism. But it drove him to prayer before God. Begging God to forgive him. And to bring him joy. But then there's another passage that came up. And it's the one uh, passage that may have some reference to Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. In reference, as we'll read here, you'll, you'll catch the word futility, and that's where it ties in. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to what? To futility, to vanity, to meaninglessness. Not willingly, but the God, because of God who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan in, inwardly as we await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are we were saved. There is an alternative to Kahulis skepticism. 
and that is Jesus Christ and as believers our hope should be our response to our own mortality if we are living in skepticism living in sin may our own mortality drive us to God seeking forgiveness if we're having inner struggles and doubts and fears may it drive us to our Savior and a reminder of that hope that when we look at nature and its redundancy, when we look at this life and the certainty of our own death, when we think about our senses not being fulfilled, the fact that we probably will be forgotten by mankind. There's one person who won't forget us, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we consider... Jehovah's struggles in the next uh, few episodes. We'll get into that particularly next week as he begins his search for meaning and purpose in life to, to get rid of that vanity and to get rid of that inner struggle. May we learn from him, but may we not become him. And I believe that's going to be an important difference as we, we study this book. We don't want to become a skeptic. Even we got to face our questions. The whole purpose of this podcast is to face our questions, especially in light of our own mortality. We've got to get this life right. But I do hope that those questions, those struggles, those doubts, those fears, as we face them, that we don't become cullen, that we don't become a skeptic, a cynic, someone who does not have a personal relationship with God. But may we, as Paul points out, have our hope in Christ in light of the futility of this world, in light of the monotony that so much around us can seem. May our focus be purified. May our hearts be set straight. And may we come back to the Shire a changed person, not a skeptic, but having still faced our inner struggles and questions, coming back better hobbits, with a personal relationship, and a more loving relationship and appreciation for our Savior and the purpose He gives us in this life. I know that uh, this is probably a little rough. Um, this is the first time I've done any sort of public speaking in five years and re- recording this is only the second time um but i hope that maybe in light of in light of all this maybe you've got something you can contemplate think about maybe provoke you to study a little bit and and i guess i I struggled a little bit because i did not expect to take the angle that that i took on that so again i hope that it was a blessing to you and as you consider the meaning of this book i'm looking forward to it i'm excited but it's going to be a challenge, a challenge to our hearts as we can probably relate to some of his musings to keep our hearts right. And uh, till next time, let's get out of our hobbit holes and go on an adventure. <laughs>